Hey everyone, I am Dr. Aaron Wheeler. And I'm Dr. Matt Cook. And this is Missio Pop, a podcast on popular missiology where two overeducated white dudes talk about all things in the culture of missions and God's hope for the world. This first season, we're focusing on the task of contextualization, the way in which culture shapes and forms the way we share God's truth. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to the 10th and final episode of season one of Missio Pop. Dr. Matt Cook, we are we're at the end. How are you feeling? It's crazy, man. I know. I, we've, met, we've met like one time, and here we are. We've <laughs> almost completed an entire podcast together. I feel like that has been the story behind the story that our listeners haven't uh, picked up on entirely is how much we are actually getting to know each other in the process of this. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, right. we, we met one time in Nashville uh maybe a few months before we launched this podcast it was it was you know it was dr lauren pinkston that set us up and said we'd make a good team and you know what i think she was right i think she was it's been fun yeah it has been a a joy to to co-host this with you you've been a a great person to work with Uh, i've enjoyed our time together i think um i was i've done like interviews and other things with other people at times and it's always hard to know when they're going to jump in and when you're going to speak and if they're going to if you're going to compliment one another. I've been in situations where that hasn't happened. And so uh, that has not been the case with you. It's been a joy. Yeah, enjoyed it's it. been a ton of fun until today. Aaron, oh, right. You right. suggested that let's do this at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. Um, this I is... don't, so I can't be really responsible for what comes out today um i've got my coffee i'm starting on my coffee right now but yeah this is early this is an early one. did i hear you say that you a minute ago that you stopped and got coffee You're uh desperate great. times call for desperate measures oh, that's, okay. that's how it is when we're gonna have to be you know on at 7 a.m that you have to do some things you have to make some choices that's that's okay. part of contextualization is if the uh situation requires it then you, you do what you got to do <laughs> yeah, so that's right. i'm doing some meta level teaching here Um, and that's what it's all about but yeah this is our you know we thought we'd do something new for our last episode have an early morning recording (laughs) Uh, but we're both fathers we we, we're used to early mornings yeah it's not new yeah did you know that fun fact back in the day go ahead the fun fact back in the day ozark christian college used to have 7 a.m classes uh when i started here 10 years ago at free hardeman as the rookie i got the 7 30 oh 735. They, you know, that was it. It was a couple, couple of years, I think. And then they finally got rid of them. Um, yeah. It was not, it was me and a, a bunch of baseball players. Cause the athletes like the athletes like the early classes cause they've got practices in the afternoon. So they sure. can knock their classes out early. So it tends to be, it tended to be a lot of athletes, which I love our athletes. Um, but a lot of them don't even, not a lot of them. There's a handful of them. Then they get here. They're like, oh, this is this is really a Christian school. Like, <laughs> I've got to take a Bible class every semester and go yeah. to chapel every day. So yeah. they're in for surprises. So that's kind of fun. But uh, yeah, now we the only thing we offer now is we we have an occasional eight o'clock class. Um, and I've discovered that the eight o'clock classes, and I teach one about every semester. It draws used to draw like a lot of athletes, and they're great, love them. But now it tends to draw all the best students mm. because you, you've got to be a pretty good student to decide I'm going to take an eight o'clock class. Sure. Um, and this really terrible students. I mean, like we may have been when we were in college. No, they're saying no way to an eight right. o'clock class. Right. Anyway. No, I found the same reality with our winter sessions where you have to come back a week early from Christmas break mm-hmm. and do an intensive class over five days that there tended to be a higher level of student who would do that. Because otherwise, you know, I can stay at home and sleep in and watch Netflix and, you know, be a college kid. Yeah. Uh, so the student who's going to make that sacrifice is, tends to be a higher level and you're dealing with a different crop of students in that winter session. But we have to land this plane today. We have to come to the end. We are continuing in part two of how to contextualize well. Last week, we looked at one and two. Number one is you've got to learn. You've got to resource yourself. We walked through a lot of books I'm sure that was thrilling for oh, all of our listeners, both of people. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, in case uh, you didn't 
get that there is a list on the episode itself with links to the books that we have to uh, those who gather royalties from that you're welcome <laughs> and then we looked at number two which is that uh let me go to my notes to see what we actually said know your perspective uh that you have to go through your own process of contextualization your own sifting to understand yourself and where you came from and why you are the way that you are that's a real big deal and is a whole process and is not usually fun but it is necessary our model for this is of course uh, Peter himself in Acts 10, who has to go through his own conversion before the conversion of Cornelius. And then today, number three, Matt, why don't you tell us about number three? Yeah, we've got to, and this is the obvious one, right? We've got to learn their perspective. In other words, we've got to be open and consider other worldviews, specifically whatever worldview um, we're ministering in, we've got to learn where they're coming from. And that takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It does. It takes a lot of work, but I think the good news is that, you know, if number one was all this reading academic textbooks on anthropology and worldview, that that isn't how we would recommend going to number three, that it it really is kind of a, it can be a fun process of learning. It can be a fun process of opening up because usually academic textbooks are not the best way. This can be a lot of different things. One of the things I'd recommend is local novels, like what is in, in your target audience and the people group you're working with, could be a generation, could be an age group, whatever distinction that is to learn how they tell stories, learn not only what their main narratives are, but how they go about telling narratives as well, that how, what their stories are, what are their key stories of how they see themselves, and then um, the method of which they do that storytelling is a huge piece of this. Yeah. And if you can do that in their language, especially, which mm -hmm. you would have to, but if we're dealing with another language, then yeah, you're really going to immerse yourself into another language, another culture. Um, I've discovered just recently some novels that are written with the purpose of understanding other cultures. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new book by David Parks. He's a professor at Samford uh, Beeson Divinity School um, called Armand's Freedom. And his goal was to like write a novel that would help his students understand um like Middle Eastern culture and the process that someone goes to and they go through when they come to Jesus. Um, and this is going to sound crazy. We talked about this last session. Um, I'm cutting Hebert's anthropological insights for missionaries from yeah. my uh, missionary culture or my cultural anthropology class. And I'm adding this this semester. Okay. Um, just as a way to help, like help people learn or help the students learn um, about other cultures, but through a novel. Anyway, side note, that's, People are doing some different stuff these days. It's kind of fun. Yeah. So the power of a narrative, the power of story, yeah. novels are a great way to do that. Most cultures we're working with around the world have a long past, much longer than ours. And yeah. so there are key stories, key texts that have shaped them and shaped how they understand the world and how they understand truth. And so read those things. They're usually pretty good. Um, and that can be a big way that we understand their perspective. And as you're, you know, have a conscious mind in the process, don't just get lost in the story. Ask yourself, you know, how are we understanding good and evil? How are we understanding right and wrong? How do, what is, what does a hero look like? What is the protagonist described as? And in a lot of ways, how does the story end? Because in most cultures around the world, we don't have happy endings. We don't have this, you know, hero's journey where the person continues to grow and then conquers their enemies and rides off into the sunset. That is our way of telling stories and so when that is subverted there's a great learning experience that can happen there yeah and it's not just from books that you learn these stories you can yeah. learn these stories from um, the visual arts like movies and television in fact um, some people might prefer to watch the movie instead of read the book sure um, sure that's one of the challenges for anybody in another culture is to especially in the age of the internet and everything's online like you got to turn off the American TV mm. and English Netflix and you got to you got to turn on some local TV and watch some local movies and watch movies, um, especially movies and t television shows from that particular culture. Yeah, I'm not talking about like turn the Spanish um, language on on Netflix and watch your American <laughs> movies. Um, yeah. Though you can again, that's not a bad it's better than watching it's an getting English closer. Yeah. Spanish, but you you get to see and visualize the way they're going to tell stories. Um, and for a lot of people, that's, that's easier even uh, to do that. Yeah. And that's a struggle. You want that comfort level, especially if you're going through culture shock and you're in your first season and 
you just want something that feels normal and real that, you know, what we watch and what we consume can be that, that comforting thing. And we got to resist that on some level. I'm not saying don't watch the thing, yeah. but uh, I'm a hypocrite here. I, yeah. I did not do great at this. That's why I'm looking back and saying, I wish I would have <laughs> watched more Peruvian movies and television. And it's funny because even if it's just turning on the local television, there's a lot to be learned, like how they do advertisements and how, you know, they handle commercial breaks and, and newscasting. Yeah. And there's there's just yeah. culture happening all around you if you're willing to watch and observe and consume. And I think even when it comes to movies, you know, asking the question like, what was the most popular movie in the last five years? That even if it's a movie that you wouldn't like, even if it's not your style, there's a lot to be learned of why did this hit a nerve? Why was this popular? What does it say about the local place that of all the types of movies they created, this was the one that people most connected with. There's a lot yeah. to be learned in that process. Mm -hmm. And then you got to learn some history of oh, yeah. your local place. You got to read. Um, some of that will come up in movies, but if you're in a place where you've got some museums um, or if you need to go to the capital city, wherever, go to the museums, yeah. learn their history and the way that they tell their history, um, that's going to be huge. Yeah, because that's another form of narrative. History is a story and how we shape that story over time how we understand you know what's happened in the last 500 years 50 years five years to get us to the place that we are is going to help you understand the people in their perspective and so um that can be you know historical movies that can be you know non-fiction historical memoirs and accounts of people uh, it can be going to museums it can be uh, lots of different places to understand why people are where they're at at this particular place in time. Like our current time is a context and we have to understand what brought us to that context. Right. We lived in Cusco, Peru, and I could, I could walk there in about 20 minutes, but if I got a taxi three or four minutes um, to the, the ancient temple of the Incan mm -hmm. Indians, um, which was really cool. Like, and it was this, these big stones it was so cool um but yeah so we had we had to go and of course a lot of these places are museums now and learn their history um and then you shape your your ministry around some of those yeah. like the way they think and the like i never forget that we learned early on like the three rules of the incans um were kind of these three ethical commandments almost sounded ten commandments ish um and so we, we played off of those some because the people knew them, like they learned them from their childhood, even though they were 500 years old. So yeah, you got you to learn from their history in the museums. And I would add to that, that, you know, in this story of history, it's important to learn, like, where are we at this point? As in, is this a season of increase or a season of decrease? Is this a time where things are getting better or a time where things are getting worse and historically why and what has led to that? And how do people view this current place in time? And I would also especially add when we're looking at cross-cultural situations, that's usually what we're talking about right here, is what is the history of your people within this place? So whether it's, you know, Westerners, whether it's Americans, whether it's, you know, male versus female, what is the history of your particular foreign group coming in? What does that relationship look like? Has it been as, you know, conquerors? Has it been as exploiters? Has it been uh, a negative or a positive thing to understand that when the local people look at you, they're looking at your history as well and to understand what are the positive, negative strengths and weaknesses of that? Absolutely. And how they, how they observe like American politics. So yeah. part of my time um, in Peru, Obama was the president and for the variety of reasons I think people across the globe loved him hmm. like Peruvians just thought he was awesome they didn't know anything about him yeah they just thought that doesn't look like the typical American president so they're like your president's Obama that's awesome um so like knowing that I think is significant hmm. in context of, of cross-cultural situations yeah also, we would recommend uh, getting into the culture. I know that's a weird thing to say, but we're talking about people, traditions, eating, celebration, how life is lived. Uh, look at how people do these things. So whatever the big holiday that's coming up, because uh, my experience, I'm sure yours is the same as that in other cultures, there seems to be a lot more holidays. Yeah. They seem to uh, have a lot of weird traditions and history behind them and celebrations can be a lot or a little just depends but yeah there's a lot of things out there and there's so many and you need a calendar so you know what's going on yeah. or for very practical purposes
purposes. You're going to go out on a day thinking this is a normal day and I'm going to get work done. And you right. go out and everything is closed and nothing has happened. That happened to us a time or two. We're like, oh, this is a normal work day. And like you walk, we walk to work and there's nobody there. Like nobody's out. Nobody's doing anything. And we could have had a day off, but we didn't know it was a holiday. Yeah, it's important to be aware. And how did that holiday come about? What's the story behind it? Who are the heroes and traditions? You know, usually these have a narrative focus of some dude who did something in some place and now we celebrate. And so learning what those stories are and um, what I found in my, go ahead. Well, and how they celebrate them. That this is why relationships are so important. Don't wait for your first Bible. Like develop relationships with your neighbors, ask them questions. And in most cultures, hospitality is viewed in a different way than it is here. And so you're going to invite your neighbors in a lot of places. You will invite your neighbors, especially if they're strangers in that land, you can invite them in to be a part of, of holiday celebrations because you want to share your culture. We're terrible about that here in the United States, but in many places, people want to share their lives and their culture with you. Um, And that could be your neighbors. That could be Christians that you've connected to along the way. There's so many ways, but you got to connect with people and develop relationships. Yeah, I think that's an important point to bring up because in the U.S., oftentimes we don't live near family. I think that's a relatively common thing. And so holidays are the time to bring the family together and kind of circle the wagons and make this a moment just for us. As to where in a lot of the rest of the world, you do live around your family. You see them all the time. And so holidays are the time to kind of open the doors and to bring other people and to show that invitation and hospitality. And so the opportunities to be in people's homes, to meet their families, to reach those deeper levels of intimacy at holidays are just greater. That was definitely our experience as well. We were in an academic environment. And so we're living on a campus and that's kind of its own fake community, not fake community, but different kind of community because it's students and teachers and everything that supports a university. But when it would break down and when we'd see real life and real families and and get into people's homes in a way that we wouldn't before is in the holidays because the university system shuts down in the holidays. And that's when other opportunities and other things arose that allowed us to do things that we never otherwise could have done. Yeah, no doubt. So finding a cultural informant is important. Yeah. Um, Maybe someone who's on the fringes of society, who's a part of that culture, but they still maybe they have a connection to your culture or is they're interested in your culture um someone who can view view from the outside but see things a little bit better than you um there was a guy in peru we had we had a friend named marco um and he was peruvian but he was different Mm. uh he didn't he didn't fit what real well with peruvians he was drawn but he was drawn to americans like he was always for years like you could tell that he had always kind of been drawn to Americans and that didn't make for a great like evangelistic um, sort of setting because he was just drawn to us because we were Americans, but he right. made a great cultural informant because he was the guy that we could go to and say, Hey, what's going on here? He was very, he was educated. He was smart, um, mm. just a little different, but made for a great cultural informant. If you can find somebody like that, that can really help you to understand what's going on in the culture. Oh yeah. I mean, those cultural informants are worth their weight in gold. They're, like you said, fringe people. That's one of the things that I observed over time is that our best cultural informants were not your insiders. They were not your local heroes. They were not the people who necessarily were connected to everyone. They were kind of people on the outskirts, on the margins a little bit for a lot of different reasons. Not necessarily because, you know, they lacked people's skills or um, they lacked education. Sometimes they were kind of above the rest of the group that um, I've known a cultural informant that, the reason he was kind of on the outside is because he spent some time in the States studying at university. And so that kind of put him above the rest of the group and also marginalized him. And so that's what they have in common is they're on the fringes and that gives them a unique place to observe both who you are as an outsider, because they're a little bit about themselves, but then also why the culture is the way it is. When you're so deep in a culture, when you're so saturated in it you can't observe it well it's oftentimes like our families of origin we're so deep into our families of origin that we can't really see it for what it is as to where other people can it's like you know when you get married and your spouse has an opportunity to view your family of origin they'll notice things and they'll see things that you don't (laughs) because they're an outsider coming in and that gives them a level of observation and so cultural informants are often in those margins in those they're just outsiders for a certain reason and they can observe and they can understand. We had 
you know, a few people that we worked with in Asia that were that way as well, that they so many times could explain things in a way that nobody else could. When something was going on, when a situation arose and I'm baffled at what is happening or why this is the way it is, they could explain it. They could articulate it. They could say, oh, it's because this and this and this. And you're just like, that was brilliant. And I never would have gotten there on my own. And they also, I found a number of times, uh, there was a guy in particular, his name was Steven. That was his English name. He would often notice when I was making assumptions. He would notice when I was missing larger pieces because the area of the culture, the, the strata of society that I was dealing with had its own unique thing that was not normal for the rest of the country. And when I was making assumptions on the whole nation, because of the specific part of that nation I worked with, he would correct me. And I really, really appreciated that. He was saying, no, you, you work with this group and that's why you think we are this way, but that is not normal and you need to correct it. And he was just brilliant in, in helping me along the way. We haven't directly talked a lot about like communication and contextualization because it's so obvious anytime you communicate, you're contextualizing. But I found that these cultural informants can really help you if you're struggling to figure out how to say something or tell a story or even just as simple as like, here, look over my my notes for this this sermon I'm going to preach. They can help you to say things in a way that make more sense in, in that culture. Yep. Um, the turns of phrases that you don't know yet, um, those cultural informants help with that too. Yeah. What do you think is necessary to find a cultural informant? This isn't in our notes, so we're we're flying solo here. Um, what have you noticed in the cultural informants you've encountered? Was there any commonalities of how to find them, how to engage with them? Because they're so important for navigating I'm going to take things. the easy way out and totally say that God's going to send them to you. <laughs> Um, the guy that I've just been talking about, he literally, we had planted this church. We kind of had our launch service, worship service. Of course, we're dealing with completely different culture than you did with it when, in Asia. So we advertised um, day one, all this advertising, 230 people show up. Um, the next Sunday, 30 people show up, which again, I get recognized as totally different from anywhere else, a lot of places in the world. Um, and so Marco was walking by um, and I'll never forget, I was kind of standing at the door. It was early, probably 20 minutes before we were supposed to start. Nobody's going to show up until 15 minutes late anyway. Um, and like he peeked his head in and he said, can I come in? He saw a sign for our worship service or something. I said, yeah, of course. And he said, well, how much does it cost? And I hmm. said, dude, nothing. You're good. And he came and then he became like one of our core people that served. Um, it took him a long time um, to become a follower. Uh, he eventually did, but I, I just say that God, he walked by our building, our, our location and decided for what he, I think he saw Americans and thought, oh, this could be cool. And then stuck it out. Uh, yeah. So I think God sends these people to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He knows we need them. That's, you know, clearly the most spiritual answer and congratulations on you for You're going that I way first. Um, but yeah, in the same vein, I was shocked at how many times our best cultural informants were people that pursued us. Mm-hmm. that you know obviously there's the prompting of the holy spirit involved no question but i think i think part of being a french person is you're looking for community in ways that the most people are getting but you're not and so these foreigners these other outsiders are a potential place for a community that you wouldn't otherwise have and so you take that initiative and you take that step and you're thinking i can't really connect with you know this group of people so let me try this other one and there's something unique yeah a lot of times people I think Americans don't realize how much we can be local celebrities simply by the fact that we're American. The the soft power of our movies and television and media that goes out to the entire world makes us, you know, look like we came off of the silver screen uh, when we go into places a lot of times. And so there's an attractional level of us just simply being, being American and there's a place where people will, will pursue us because of that and come to us. And oftentimes those were the very people that, that we were looking for and that we needed. But another one that I noticed was um, as you're in communities and as you're looking around in places where people gather, those who are kind of on the outside, those who don't seem to be fitting in, don't seem to be connected. Sometimes they're too loud. Sometimes they're too quiet. Uh, whatever it is that if you will take an opportunity to just go connect with that person and just pursue them a little bit that you'll often find someone with a very unique perspective someone who can can understand the local culture in a powerful way that 
is a huge piece of learning and growing and understanding of people. Absolutely. And then we haven't said this, but it's pretty obvious. You just got to keep asking questions. Yeah. It's specifically why, why is this happening? And so you ask your cultural informant, but that's obvious. And I think that's, we've tried to emphasize that throughout. You're going to ask why Yeah. Um, things are going on. And that's the humility of being willing to look like the dumb person that you're asking simple questions that nobody else asks because everybody else understands. And so you're willing to look like the idiot who's like, why are we doing this? I don't understand what this is. Learn to be childlike in that way that you're always asking that why you're always wanting clarity. You're always wanting things understood and people will think it's adorable because you, you know, look a bit like a simpleton, but that's okay. That's, that's part of Christ-like humility that we are willing to do that. Um, And so this is a really big deal. You've got to learn who this group is, what they're about, what drives them, what motivates them, even to levels that they themselves may not understand because they haven't been asking the why. They just accept things for what they are. And I don't know if you ever ran into that situation where you would learn some things and you would pick up on some things and you try to, you know, ask local people because check if whether these conclusions you're making are correct or whether you understood this correctly. And so when you explain why you think things are the way they are, when you bring out your theories that you get some a mixed level of reactions to that. <laughs> I think people don't want to be analyzed sometimes. Right. And that's understandable because we don't want to be analyzed too, especially by an outsider. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right about continuing to ask those questions is the key. Um, but yeah, yeah that's, I forgot what I was going to say. It, seven, 7.40 just came up on my brain. <laughs> I is. totally lost it my is. train of thought. I knew it was going to happen at some point. You said something a minute ago that was like, yeah, that. And then it's gone now. It's okay. It's okay. We're, we're, we're in our last one. If you've made it to episode 10, you're, you're on board with us. So <laughs> we can lower the expectations. And I think in the midst of this, it has to be stated that anytime you're in a cross-cultural situation, you're going to encounter things that you don't like. Mm-hmm. You're going to encounter things that you think are wrong, that you think shouldn't be done this way. And that's going to bring up your need, your what you feel is your need to criticize. And that's um, not advised. Mm-hmm. That's generally people don't take criticism well, especially from an outsider, especially from someone who's not in the thing. And so I think you've got to find your place where criticism is safe. I don't necessarily, I'm not advising to just bury it and, you know, put it deep and pretend it's not there. There does need to be a place to process. There does need to be a safe space for you to articulate how you're feeling, especially the negative emotions. But in the midst of this, you know, going to local people and saying, why don't you fix this? Or why don't you do this differently? is generally not well-received and not advised. Yeah. And maybe we just, again, follow the example of Jesus. Um, He was led to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. Um, Perhaps even when we're mistreated, it's probably some or we feel like something unjust has occurred or we got overcharged because we're Americans for this taxi ride. And there were, I look back and I have a couple regrets of times that I, I tried to argue stand for my rights, um, which again is a very American thing to do yep. to stand for your rights. Um, but it doesn't usually turn out well as we try to demonstrate Jesus to people. Yeah. I mean, we could get into a whole case study scenario of, what is the difference between a tip and a bribe? But we won't do that. <laughs> no, we don't want to go. The sponsor for today's podcast is Ozark Christian College. Now, being that this is like my first podcast I've ever done, I don't know how these ads are supposed to work. Uh, I've always wondered, like, how do you talk about something that you really don't know about, but you have to suddenly be a salesman for? And I'm super glad that today I don't have to do that. Instead, I get to tell you about Ozark Christian College. Not only was this uh, just a monumental part of my own life and calling and experience, but it is now the place where I get to serve and hopefully provide something similar to my students. And specifically what I'm here to talk to you about today is the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry with a concentration on strategic leadership. What this degree is all about is helping those who have a call to lead. That leadership can be in a variety of contexts, from churches to nonprofits to parachurch organizations, and the strategic leadership concentration will equip you to dive deep into God's word and learn from that what it means to lead God's people across generations, across cultures, into whatever God's kingdom calling is for them. If this interests you and you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to go and apply for free at occ.edu masters. 
How are things going? I mean, really going for your church post-COVID. At Kindred Exchange, we hope your congregation is thriving, that your people are connected to each other, your community is connected to your people, and all of these people are reaching the world with overflowing love and gospel impact. We have a hunch, though, because we are also a part of churches, that perhaps things are a bit messier than this. Over the last decade, we experienced new critiques to evangelism and American Christianity in a plurality of ways. Then, a global pandemic cultivated a natural break for many to step away from the faith community they had always known. We want to be a part of what's next for you. With the Mission Audit Weekend at Kindred Exchange, you'll gather with leaders from area churches to ask the tough questions about what's past, what's next, and what's best for the gospel to be an encouragement, not only to your immediate neighbors, but to your neighbors across the globe. Through keynotes, facilitated workshops, and curated moments of networking and sharing, our team of mission experts will guide your church leadership through a two-day assessment of your outreach programs and strategies. It's no secret that people are hungry for good news. Let's make sure we're using relevant approaches to help that good news be received as hope and light in a heavy, fast-changing world. If your church would like to be a city host, let us know. Or you can sign up for our next event taking place in Nashville on August 25th and 26th at www.kindredexchange.org backslash audits. Step one is, of course, you got to learn. You've got to grow in your understanding of what contextualization is. Step two is that you've got to learn yourself. Step three is that you've got to learn them. So there's a lot of learning involved, a lot of experience, and we want to make sure that we're emphasizing that's experiential learning. We don't just simply want you to read books, but you want to get into things, use all of your senses to be a part of these things. That's where learning really happens. And then once all that is done, it's time to speak truth. But let me put a caveat on that. Speak truth in cooperation with the people you're working with. It's got to be a joint venture. It's got to be something that you work together. One of the great mistakes that we can make in contextualization is saying, okay, I've, I've done the work of understanding myself. I've un done the work of understanding you. And so now I'm at this place of authority. I'm at this place of I've arrived. Um, you know, we want to get prophetic a little bit and say, now that I know you and I know me, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And that's lacking that Christ-like humility that desire to empty yourself to have that servant's place philippians 2 stuff we're getting into here instead we're asking making sure don't do this alone working with the local people in cooperation hand in hand with them walk together in how church is done and how faith is lived and how community is is created and how sermons are crafted that all of this is done in cooperation with the people you've come to know and love and serve yeah, and part of this is about trusting God to work through um, not just you, but through the people that you're with and that you're serving and that you're discipling. Um, God, God, God's spirit lives in them just as much as he lives in yep. you, and he can work through them as much as he can work through you. Um, and again, to not do that, I kind of want to be like, okay, obviously that's humility, but I think more than it's to not do that is just a really big pride problem. Yeah, And we struggle with that as outsiders and we've got the answers. And most likely if you're doing this, you've gone to um, college or seminary, you've got a graduate degree in some sort of theological study. So, you know, your stuff um, and you want to give the answers. Um, but really what will happen is if you get to the point where you're sharing truth and you're not doing it in partnership with locals, you've basically taken step three, which is learn about their culture and you've thrown it out the window. You're like, I did this once and now I'm done. No, you got to keep doing it. And you've got to keep learning their culture as you, as you share truth. Um, or you'll, you'll have an uncontextualized gospel that nobody will understand. It's, it's one of those great, we've talked about this before, but one of the great exercises we have to do in all cross-cultural mission work is to think of what you're doing in reverse. That if you, we use the example before a, a young woman from South Korea that, wants to come do work in America. How's that going to go? How's that going to be received? You know, if she does the work of watching, you know, all the Fast and Furious movies and, you know, takes in the latest Little Mermaid and is doing, you know, what she's trying to do to figure out who we are 
and then comes in and tells us how we're doing everything wrong, that's not going to be received well. That's not going to create the kind of change that we want to see. And so the humility to say, I don't have this all figured out. Chances are I never will because this is such a continual process. And so if I have a prayer of the kind of impact that I'm hoping to see, it's going to be done hand in hand with the local people, if not led by the local people to, to get this done. And like you said before, it goes back to believing then the power of the Holy spirit, that the Holy spirit that's in me is just as much in others and getting away from the inherent baked in pride of all mission work, which is that I'm coming with this thing that you don't have. I'm coming with my betterness to make a difference in your lack of betterness that, creates a, an inherently prideful dynamic that we constantly have to fight against. And then we end up, I'll speak simply here. We end up scratching itches that they don't have. <laughs> like we feel like there's things that need to be talked about because they need to be talked about in our culture that either really it's not a problem there or it doesn't make sense to them. We've talked about some like justice and versus honor shame, or I think about like authority and the way, like, I think as Americans become followers of Jesus, like submission to Jesus as the ultimate authority and king, like that's something that people have to get because we don't do well at submitting to authority. But for example, in Latin America, you submit to authority. Like if someone's in authority, mm -hmm. um, you submit to them. The problem isn't the submission to authority. The problem is you don't feel any intimacy with anybody in authority. So like there's a, there's a, the way we approach something as simple as like the authority of Jesus as our king it's going to look different somewhere else, but we want to, anyway, the point is here, um, you got to work with other people so that you don't scratch itches that they don't have. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've told the story on this podcast before and I'll keep a real brief version of it, but one of the first teaching opportunities I ever had cross-culturally uh, went for about an hour and a half. I thought it was solid stuff. I thought it was making an impact. And when we got to the Q and a time afterwards, the very first question that somebody asked, which was not remotely related to anything I said or anything I've done, was about whether or not I believe that you can eat blood. <laughs> because, you know, that's a real biblical controversy of the consumption of blood. And apparently in the local culture, it was also a big controversy and a hot topic. And that was one of the big questions that apparently been going around in this local community is because there's local dishes that have coagulated blood in it and whether or not you could consume that as a follower of Jesus and not remotely on my radar because it's not an issue that we deal with or we yeah. confront but to them it was as hot topic as anything and they wanted to know what I thought and everything that I'd spent the last hour and a half teaching through didn't remotely address what was one of their most felt needs so there's kind of three questions you would want to ask as you yeah. speak truth and cooperation with them the first one would be what does it sound like? So here we're talking about the real practical stuff. Like, is this linguistically accurate? Um, is your vocabulary, your vernacular, um, does this sound like something that a local would say, yeah. um, especially if you're the one saying it? So again, in Peru, you, we plant the church. We can get people to come to church in Peru. Um, and so I would preach most Sundays. And I ran, even after multiple years there, felt really comfortable with the language. Um we weren't taking language classes, except I paid my language teacher once a week. Uh, she'd come to our apartment and I would, I'd hand her my sermon and say, what do you do? What do you think? Mm -hmm. um, and that was so, so helpful because she could, not only would she help with like shifting, um, again, turns, phrases that I might not know, or it might sound weird as I crafted it, um, but like illustrations, his, the stuff we talked about earlier, historical illustrations, like she having somebody to help you communicate well um it's just good it's just wise um and it's going to help you contextualize better yeah and it's obviously when we're dealing with language that the local language is different than the language i speak this stuff is pretty obvious but it applies just as much even if you do speak the local language because language has layers to it and there's there's slang and there's storytelling and there's all these layers to stuff that even within a, a monocultural environment we deal with how you the words that you choose and what those words mean and, and we've mentioned this before but even in american culture the deep christian ease with which we speak where we use phrases and um words that the rest of the culture doesn't they're church words 
And the more that we use church words, the more ostracizing that we become, the more we're making this an insider movement where, in the, not in a good way, uh, making an insider movement where if you're not a part of this insider thing, you're clearly not welcome or a part of this community. Absolutely. Great point. So the first question is, what does it sound like? What can we do in our language, vernacular, vocabulary, the values that we're communicating to say that uh, this, is, this is for you? The second question is, what does it look like? We're talking about representation. We're talking about, do the people that we're working with see themselves as part of this thing? Do they see themselves welcomed as this thing? Do they see that this is for them? And I think, you know, we're, especially when we talk about representation, we as our own unique Western American culture have some baggage here. This has become uh, a bit of a politi politicized topic. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of need to address that head on that if we are working from a Western context, if that's our home area, representation, it, it's a mixed bag. And people are going to look at that term in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But if we, if we are part of the majority, which you know most of us are, because that's how the word majority works, um, we've got to recognize that we are not seeing the whole picture. And that we have experience, we don't have the experiences that other people do. And there's a humility in just recognizing, I haven't seen things the way you have seen things. And so I'm going to allow for your voice to measure well. I'm going to allow for your voice to be true, even if it's not something that I don't understand, that I'm going to give you the trust and the honor to be able to do that. And so, you know, I had a situation here locally where um, a, a person of color was describing what it meant for to see another person of color on stage and how until that point she believed that this church wasn't for her mm -hmm. and that's hard for me to to hear because it's like why would you think this church isn't for you I, how, why would you come to that conclusion i can immediately question it and you know think that there's ulterior motives behind it and believe that this is not a solid conclusion but to be able to put that aside and say you know what i haven't walked the road that you have walked yeah i haven't seen this culture the way that you have. If you tell me this is your experience and you tell me this is how you feel, I have to just accept that for what it is. Which reminds me, I mean, as soon as possible, you want to sit down and not be the person. If there's a situation where somebody's up front talking, um, the outsider, as soon as is possible, the outsider shouldn't be the one who's up front talking. Yeah. Um, you want it to look like that local culture. And obviously, when things are just getting started, especially if it's a place where this is a new church plant um, and you've got brand new people coming to faith in Jesus, um, that's going to take a little while. But making it look like um, a local culture means sometimes I got to sit down. I got to shut up and sit down as soon as there's someone who can take my spot, which is so different. If you grew up in an American church context, yeah. a local ministry person is trying to keep their job. But I think if you're in another culture, your goal is ultimately to work yourself out of a job. If you've done your job well, um, they don't need you because they've got locals who can do this thing. Are you saying that missionaries should stop preaching, Matt? Is that what you're saying? Ooh, maybe so. <laughs> Turns out to make your job a lot easier. You wouldn't have to do all this language stuff, hard language stuff. You get somebody who actually knows the language to do it. I Boy, I shouldn't go down this road, but I always loved when... Um, campaign groups would come from the united states you keep using and that word campaign is that what you guys call your mission trips yeah we do it's campaigns yeah. yeah i've never heard that word before i, well, I mean i've heard I you think, say it several times in this podcast yeah, yeah. campaign trips i think some like, kids some some folks would call it a mission trip i don't like the word mission trip because it's like i don't want some this is not, i don't want some college student to go somewhere for a week and think that they've gone on a mission trip I want them to know they've gone somewhere on a campaign. They've helped someone. They are not a missionary. Um, anyway, perhaps it's just missionary oh, look pride. At you, look I at you gatekeeping. Uh, I know, right? I can't help it. But yeah, we call it campaigns is what a lot of what we call these things. So I've only thought of campaigns as like political campaigns. And so that's oh, why the first couple of times you used that word that threw me off. Like, oh, we're going to yeah. get somebody elected. Now this is really hairy. Yeah, short-term short -term campaign work um, is a lot of what we called it. Okay. Anyways. But I guess it's always funny to me when one of these like Americans will come and they want to speak. Mm. It's like, oh, wait a second, you you don't know the you want to. We've spent again, maybe this is gatekeeping again. We spent the past <laughs> three years learning the language, 
and you want to come in and like use a translator or we've yeah. got Peruvians who can talk and you want to come in and like speak in English and use a translator just because anyway, pri- there's a lot of pride. Yeah. Um, I think with this sort of thing. And so we want, we want things to look as local as possible in their representation. And that's, and we, we need to pause and acknowledge that that is super hard. Mm-hmm. And that if, if you're in a situation or, I mean, yeah, I've been in this time before, looking at you know missionary kids your parents were in a situation where you know your dad preached at a church in some other country for 25 years we're not condemning you we're not saying you did it wrong we're not that's that's not what is trying to happen here we're just saying that in faith in believing in the holy spirit and believing that the holy spirit is the one making these things happen i wish i had this bonhoeffer quote on me about how christ built the church that we believe this is God's work and we believe that this is in the spirit of Christ, that things are done and accomplished and succeed. And that what that looks like is going to be different for everything in every place. And so when we believe in the power of the Holy spirit to do the work instead of us, that we are much more ready to get out of the way. We're much more willing to let go. We're much more willing to release. And I know that that is hard. If you know, you've raised tens of thousands of dollars to go to this place and you've gone through all of your training and you have your degrees and you want this, all the work you've done to pay off. And oftentimes that payoff feels like I'm in charge and I'm the one doing the work (laughs) that you've got to just take that to Jesus, to be honest, Mm -hmm. and let him speak to you about what that means. I can say that when I look at scripture, Ephesians four is, I think the most articulate way of saying this is that when God gifts us to do things and allows us to play a role in his body, that there is a season. Yes. Where we are the primary doers of the things, but we quickly want to get out of that season to become the facilitator, to become the equipper, to be you know, as Ephesians 4 describes the offices of the church as actually not the one who does those things, but the one who equips the people to do those things. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard transition to make because you're not getting the glory. You're not getting the recognition. You're not, you know, getting the serotonin rush of exercising your gifts. Instead, you're, you're the behind the scenes person who's watching this happen through others. But I can also say that there is a, I have discovered a deeper satisfaction in that. I find just like a parent, you know, watching your kid play t-ball or whatever, there is a sense of pride and accomplishment by watching others succeed that is deeper and more satisfying than anything that you ever do yourself. And so, yeah, man, get the heck out of the way. Yep. And it may take years. Like it's okay to acknowledge this may take years. Um, But yeah, that's what you're shooting for. And that's a great illustration. Like a a proud, I think about Paul, like with the way he thinks of Timothy yeah. as a son in the faith, here's an opportunity to be like a, a parent to somebody in the faith and to see them like step up and lead God's people. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but you got to get out of the way to experience that. And I think the parenting metaphor also works that how that person that you're raising up is going to do it is they're going to do it differently than you because mm-hmm. they're going to have different reasons. Just like a parent, when you're like, you look at your child, like, why are you doing it this way? Um, that they're going to do things differently and you've got to, you know, trust that the Holy Spirit's in charge and not you and that this is going to be okay. It's the continual journey of release of following Jesus, of learning to let go. And um, my advice would be no matter where you are, no matter where you're going to always look at this as nothing more than a season. This is a season of work. And so just like seasons change on a regular basis, you've got to be ready for that change and that transition. And so is my season up? Because the thing that we rarely talk about in missions culture is the problems that happen when you don't let go, when you don't release, when you don't transition to local people and leadership, is that there's a lot of negative that occurs. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of stagnation. There's a lot of um, everything becomes about you and becomes on your shoulders. And that's not a good place for things to be. No. And then on a really practical level, what if you have to leave? Yeah. Like, what if, if you have to leave, does this community of believers survive? Or have you built this thing in a way that it's all about you so that if you have to leave, it's going to fall apart. And that ha- that's happened many, many times. Yes. Yes. And so you want to, my favorite illustration of this is, um, like, as you build a building, um, if you build it with 
scaffolding, when the building is completed, um, what do you do with that scaffolding? You take it down, right? Missionary mm-hmm. okay. ought to see themselves as scaffolding so that when, yeah. when you've, and you haven't done, but when God's built this thing, you can just remove the scaffolding, remove yourself from the situation and this thing stands. But too many missionaries um, set themselves up as the center tent pole of a tent. And when you remove that tent pole, the center pole, the whole thing collapses. You don't want to do cross-cultural ministry in that way so that everything collapses when you step away. Although we have to name the elephant in the room is that when you are the tent pole, it's easier to raise money. Uh, It is. It It is. is. It is. But yeah. Um, So the three questions are, what does it sound like? What does it look like? And that's leading to the third question, which we've we've dealt with a lot already, is who's in charge? What does leadership look like? And, you know, we're, we're basing a lot of this on the Apostle Paul and how he handled his mission work, which was as quickly as possible, he handed it off to local leadership and he got it out of the way. Now, he still stayed on as an apostle. He's not abandoning people. He's continuing the network and communication and relationship that is involved with these, with these uh, local communities. But as far as decision making and what is, what is contextualization going to happen? Uh, he leaves it up to the people to decide and he leaves it locally in that place. And, and we need to do the same. Yeah. He seems to like, from our perspective, he appoints elders um, really quickly, especially in Acts yeah. chapter 14. Like he's just gone through these cities, um, gets to the end of the road and then goes back. And it's like, he appointed elders in every city. And it's like, yeah. Whoa, these are some likely, maybe there's some Jewish guys in here who've had a long relationship with faith, but this seems really quick, um, but I think it just it's an illustration of the point that um, we've got to hand this off as quickly as possible, um, responsibly, but um, in a way that allows locals to lead this church, because the church is going to be more successful, um, spiritually successful in bringing other people to Jesus if locals are doing it, yep. um, who, know, who know the culture. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I, I get hyperbolic about these things and I recognize that. But the mantra that I've always tried to teach when it comes to raising up and training missionaries is the hard truth that in, here's where the statement begins, in the long run, the local people will always do it better. Mm-hmm. That when it comes to the immediate setup and first things, maybe not. I mean, you're, you're hopefully there because something is not happening. But in the long run, the locals will always do it better. And we've got to be asking how quickly are we letting that stage begin? Um, everybody's in a different place and we're not saying there's one size fits all model for this, not in any, in any way, but that we've always got to be looking in that direction. You know, it's funny in, you talk about short-term mission trips that I I've been on several myself and I know many people who have, and how many times we've walked into situations in all different parts of the world where we go to a local Sunday morning service. And we see a church that's operating out of the 1950s. I don't know if you've experienced that, where you go what? to some, you go to some no. other place, you go to some other place in the world. We're not talking about like, you know, Southern Alabama. We're talking about like some other country, some other place. And you walk into a local church and it's like, yeah, a Baptist church from the 1950s. And it's like, it's this out of body experience of like, what is going on here? And if you peel back the layers and look at the history, what you always find is they go, well, this is what the missionary taught us to do. Mm-hmm. this is how the missionary explained what church is and so we're just following what the missionary said decades after that missionary has left <laughs> yeah. and that's part of what we have to recognize when we bring in the authority of the missionary whether we recognize that authority or not how we tell them to do stuff is how they're going to do it and, and it's possible that that's how they're going to do it forever mm-hmm. and so contextualization is not happening because we haven't truly in a humble place said, I don't have the answers for this place. I'm not going to tell you how to do stuff. Let's work together to figure out how God is going to represent himself in this culture. And even in the country of service that I lived forever, that country's got a really weird history of like the explosion of the local church. You know, I worked there in a season of harvest and the explosion of the local church happened as soon as the missionaries left, as soon as they, for Mm -hmm. political reasons, got kicked out. That's when the church really got its groove and i'm not saying that's going to be the case in every country i'm not saying you know the solution to god's global work is to remove all missionaries don't take this way farther than i'm saying it because i'm not but there is one testimony of one country where things really took a whole nother level when the missionaries got out of the way yeah and that's we don't want to hear that but it's absolutely the case and yeah so 
we ready for number five? Are we ready for the last point of the last episode? It's short. It is. Let's do short. it. Okay. Number five. So, it, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> number five is, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about change. It's, it's internal change. It's external change. It's this continual adapting and molding to God being local. And number five is just be ready to change again because this is a never ending process, never settle, never arrive, never, you know, put the last dot on the last sentence and say, this work is done, but continually be open to change, be open to what's next. Realize that this process is never done. Which is the key to what you just said a minute ago, where you go into a place and it looks like an American church from the 1950s in a far off place in another culture. Um, The key to preventing that is to teach the locals as you disciple people you've got to disciple them about contextualization um, that they know that this is an ongoing process and that it's now their job as you hand this thing off um, it's their job to continue adapting this because this process is never done yeah culture is never static culture is always shifting and moving and manifesting itself in different ways and if we're not you know conveying those principles and those realities things get stuck we got to remember that what today we call traditionalism, what today we call people being stuck in their ways was at once a cutting edge contextualization. We've talked about, you know, Sunday night church before Yeah, that that's one of those hard things that, you know, if you cut Sunday night church programming, people lose their minds because you don't love Jesus anymore. And what we look at is a, as an old outdated tradition that is pulling the church down at one point was a brand new cutting edge ministry program idea that was going to light the world on fire because that's just how time works. And yeah. so if we're, if we stop trying to change, stop trying to be ready for what's next, we congratulate ourselves too much <laughs> for mm-hmm. our success. And we're not willing to let go of what was once a cool thing to make room for what's next. Then yeah, and it's, we're not it's as simple as asking, how can we be a biblical and relevant church in 2023? The problem is you've got to keep asking that question because yeah. you've got to ask it again in 2024 and 2025. And it's, ongoing process and we've talked about churches in the united states that have struggled with this churches that stop contextualizing will be go into the process of decreasing dramatically in numbers and eventually they will die Um, or they may they may maintain for a long time but it's down to just the older people and the families that have stuck around Um, but if you don't if you don't continue this process churches will die and that's true in any culture like if the people who begin, like the locals, as they if they don't do this, they don't contextualize. If they just do what you did yeah. as the missionary, then that church will eventually die out. I've, but that I think that puts a, again, a heavy responsibility on the missionary to actually train people, like give people permission to do this. You may have to like say it out loud. You do not have to do things just like I've done. I'm going to train you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to disciple you. But you've got to at some point take the keys and take some ownership of this. But it's going to take training. Um, I, my professor and, um, my main professor during my doctoral studies would tell the story of the Panama Canal and how there came this point at which the United States handed over the, obviously there's some colonialism and all this stuff there, but eventually the, the folks in Panama said, this is our country. This is our canal. We want to do this. And so, um, they had this big, big ceremony where they like officially handed over the keys to the Panamanians. Um, and then the next day, the Panamanians handed the key back and said, you've got to tell us how to do this now. (laughs) They weren't, they were not ready to run the Panama Canal. Um, So boy, we've got some serious training and discipleship to do um, as we help people. But ultimately we want to hand them the keys so that they can do this in their own ways, in their own culture. Yeah. I think we could use the easy metaphor of like building a church that your goal as a missionary is not to build the church and hand over the keys. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Your job as the missionary is to show up at the local place and with the local people the whole time, ask the same questions. Where should we place this church? What, how do we acquire land? What kind of building materials? What is this? Like when problems arise of what do we do, continually turn that back to them and say, what do you think we should do? What makes sense to you? How uh, have that humble place to say, I am here to serve Christ in whatever way and shape or form that needs to be. Yeah. But this, this is decision. your this is your place. This is your church. This is your mission. Yeah, help, or you end up in a situation. Understand. You end up in a situation like the Panama Canal, where 
Right. We went in, we built a canal without on our own. And then when it was like, okay, we're to you, they weren't ready. Like yeah. the key to handing something over is to never, for it to never have been your own in the first place. You have from the beginning, as you've just said, um, it's been a community um, where you've constantly been in cooperation with locals. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole history of colonialism there as well, where countries came in to underdeveloped countries and you know built roads and schools and hospitals and then left and then they're like look what they did when we did that look how they destroyed this stuff it's like because you never involved them in the whole time you never showed them how to do these things or what the benefit of it you never involved them you just went in and copied and pasted your stuff walked away and you're surprised that it didn't work um it's from day one step one that humble posture and spirit uh one of my the best language teachers i ever encountered um, said, you know, if you're going to learn the language, you got to be ready to look like a fool. Yeah. And it's no different in learning how to do mission that you got to be ready to look like the fool. And not only will that be more effective in the long run, it'll also be endearing to the local people. Uh, they will find a, a different way to accept you and a different way to work with you. And that's, that's, that's a big deal. So I want to, I want to honor those of our listeners that are thinking about um, doing some cross-cultural stuff. Um, thank you for being willing to look like a fool yeah. um, because you're most likely about, if this is something you're about to do, you're about to give up um, some successful career in the United States where people look up to you yeah. and you're about to go somewhere and sound like a three-year-old um, and you're going to look like a fool. But um, boy, I think God is honored by that. Um, turns out that's what the gospel is sort of all about, isn't it? Some, some yeah. foolishness. Yeah. I mean, Take Philippians 2, you know, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who did not consider and fill in the blank with did not consider, did not consider a house and two cars, did not consider your advanced degrees, did not consider your 401k, something to hold on to, but instead emptied himself. You know, what is, what is that for you? What does that place look like? This is the journey of following Jesus is continually releasing, letting go. In the end, that's the that's the great irony of learning to let go and release is you get to hold on to Jesus more as you get rid of the things that you don't need. And often those things are positions and titles and respect and authority. Um, Nobody got more, like got more stuff, had a better life and and was like, oh, this made me more like Jesus. Yeah. Or this helped me to be closer. No. Um, when we when we when we suffer. Um, that's when, and we always look back and like, oh yeah, that was the time that I grew. And when I gave something up, um, when I was forced to sacrifice, when I chose to sacrifice or when I, when I went through something I didn't want to go through, um, that's when Christ shaped me the most into his image. Nobody took a vacation to Hawaii and was like, oh wow, now I'm more like Jesus. Um, (laughs) but I mean, I still want to go to Hawaii someday, but I don't expect that it'll help me to become more like Jesus. It'll just be fun. Final thoughts as we wrap up this entire season. Um, if I could lean into hyperbole a little bit, I would say uh, my final thought is contextualize or die. Wow, that's heavy. It's, it's, it's that simple. I mean, it's whether we're talking about a local church, whether we're talking about a denomination, whether we're talking about a missions movement, if it is not incarnate, you know, to use the model of Christ, if it is not a local thing, then it's, it's only going to last for a season. And so you are choosing that season to be short. Mm. If it's not a a local thing lived in a local way. That's so serious and a great way to end. But like, I'm picturing in my mind, a meme with your face and skull bones that says (laughs) contextualize or die. That, That could be our, our graphic. If we ever do this again, like, yeah, we can put that on the season two graphic. Um, Contextualize or die. But it, you're right. It, this is this is about the glory of God's going to be glorified no matter what. Um, but we want to see local churches and local communities across the world, not just survive, but thrive. And that will not happen if yeah. we're not serious about contextualization. Yeah. One of my favorite passages in scripture is John 1, where it describes what the incarnation is and what it looks like. And I especially like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase where he said, God moved into the neighborhood. Mm. 
it's it's that localization of what Jesus is. And as we started out episode one here, that, that Jesus is the ultimate example of contextualization of this Trinitarian God that is a great mystery, choosing to empty himself and fill human flesh so that he could be understood. That's the task of contextualization. And as followers of Jesus, as imitators of Christ, we are called to the same thing. Absolutely. This has been fun. It has, Matt. Thanks. I've enjoyed yeah, our time together. I We're going to hope our listeners have enjoyed it a little bit. If yeah. Continue to, to episode 10. Maybe they don't hate our guts completely. Yeah. I hope not. We're going to spend um, a season dreaming and we're going to spend some season resting from making a podcast. That's the first thing. And then uh, we're going to dream and talk about what a podcast on popular missiology would look like for season two. If uh, you, any of you out there have ideas or things you'd want, we'd love to hear that feedback because uh, we really don't have a plan for season two, but we'll make some stuff. And I, I almost hesitated to say anything on this that it's entirely possible between season one and season two, I'll have some random inspiration for a bonus episode. And there's, there's a possibility that something gets thrown out there no promises, um, no commitments, but we'll see. Bonus episode. Who knows? Um, Who knows? Who's to yeah, say? We haven't These are possible this, things. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Thank you guys for listening. This is the end of season one of Missio Pop. Missio Pop.